Hope Point. We, we would love for you to be part of Hope for India. Again, the table is in the back. And a $35 sponsor of a child, you'll take a card with you. It'll have the child's name on the back, the gender of the child, the age of the child, and the orphanage, our partner orphanage uh, that they're in over in India. And so you'll take this with you, sponsor the child, put this on your refrigerator, and, and be sure to pray for this child um, as often as God lays that child on your heart. And then the team is going to take that money and go to India, purchase the to- the, either a toy, a clothing item, and school supplies for the children, and then distribute those items to the children in these children's home. And then they're going to get a picture of the child uh, and bring it back. And so then they'll be able to give you a picture of the child that you're praying for as well. Um, so it's just a very neat way, very a great way for us to be connected and be involved in the children's homes uh, of our partner ministry over there in India. So please stop by the table in the back. We'll, be, we'll have this table back there uh, through October 28th. So you have a few weeks uh, to be part of this. The other thing I wanted to say before I, before I start is just give you an update on Richard. Most of you know he's down in Augusta with his mother uh, doing a, a transition into a nursing home. So I just talked to him about 20 minutes ago, and he just continued to ask and covet your prayers as he's going through that transition. I think Lisa's down there with him over the weekend as well. Um, and he was in the nursing home this morning having breakfast with his mother. So just keep Richard in your prayers. I, I know he would appreciate, appreciate that. We're in First Peter this morning, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. I, I just want to read through the text and then pray and, and then get started. First Peter 3. Um, verses 1 through 7. Peter says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on the gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel." since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, um, we come to you this morning as broken people, um, lacking in many areas, Father. Uh, So we are so grateful for the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ was broken for us uh, so that um, we could be healed. We heard last week. It was by his wounds that we are healed. Um, We were straying, but because of Christ's death, we are now able to return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Uh, So, Father, meet us here this morning. And all of our weaknesses and all of our struggling, um, all of the turmoil that's, that's going on in all of the circumstances of our lives, Father, would you meet us here this morning? Uh, use this text, don't use me, Lord, use this text uh, to speak 
to the hearts uh, here, Father. I know that's spoken to me already this week. Um, Lord, I pray that this would not uh, lay guilt on anyone, uh, but in Christ, Lord, may you make this text be freeing to people. Um, help us to examine our own hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that this text would heal marriages. Uh, Lord, that, that we would look to Christ and Him alone uh, for healing. God, I pray for healing for our city. God, this city needs you. It needs you more than anything, Father. Um, there's shootings and uh, all across the city, Lord, that we need Christ uh, and your spirit to move in this city. God, so use us as a tool however you want to use us. May we be willing to be used in this city like you want to use us so that Christ's name will be magnified and he will be glorified and relationships will be healed and the suffering would bring you glory. Lord, I pray for those in a persecuted church um, that don't have it like we have it here, Lord, that are suffering for the name of Christ, that are missing meals and in solitary confinement because they are unashamed of you. And so would you bring comfort to our brothers and sisters around the world right now? Lord, would you do that? Would your name be proclaimed this morning because of the preached word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing in our First Peter series this morning, um, beginning in chapter 1, uh, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, and last week, Peter gave us some very practical instructions on how to live as aliens and strangers in this world. Um, we learned that the royal priesthood of God, all believers are to submit even to pagan authorities. Like the, the authority structure that God has placed us in, we are to submit to that authority structure. He talked about citizens to government, and he talked about employee to employer or servant to master in first century Rome. And so today, Peter addresses another household relationship. Uh, the first one from last week was servant-master, and this morning he, he addresses the husband-wife relationship. And we read these verses already where Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then in verse 7 he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. So wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, honor your wives. So, you know, we're, we, we're committed here at Hope Point to preach through books of the Bible, and you just come to texts like this, and you just have to deal with what the text deals with. And so I've known this was coming for quite a while, and to be honest with you, I was not looking forward to preaching it, right? Uh, this text is just so countercultural uh, in our society. You know, it could be viewed as unfair or even oppressive. Many do probably because of the way of have, have men in the church have abused the, this instruction and not because the actual text is oppressive. Uh, but in contrast, if you think about first century, these words would have been very comforting to uh, women readers as Peter was really shifting the paradigm of this household relationship. Peter was saying something that none of his contemporary writers were saying at that time. Peter was saying, honor your wife as your equal. 
right? She is a co-heir of the grace of life, is what he tells us in verse 7. So honor her as such. So Peter was saying, honor your wife as your equal in a society that had little to no respect uh, for women. So as I began to sort of think of how should I structure this sermon, I thought it might be wise first to talk about the beauty of how God has designed the marriage relationship, how the male and the female role in marriage is really reflecting different aspects of Jesus. So I think this will be helpful for us as we consider Peter's instructions to husbands and wives this morning so that we don't get tripped up as we go through this text. Because if we don't see this as beautiful, we will get tripped up, I do believe. So according to our text, there is submitting and there is honoring in marriage. It's a unique rhythm, a unique change, exchange between husband and wife. So I titled my sermon, The Dance. The Dance. This is not a reference to the Garth Brooks song, The Dance. Um, I could have missed the pain, but then I'd had to miss the dance. Not that song. It's simply an illustration of how beautiful this design really is. Uh, th- this the dance, it's not original to me. Tim, guys like Tim Keller, C.S. Lewis, Cornelius Plantain applied this illustration to the Trinity, as will I, but I want to take it just a step further and just show how this Trinitarian dance is performed in our marriages. So I'll spend some time talking about the dance in general, and then we'll get back to the first Peter passage and, and see how Peter applies this to real life situations. Um, I I do want to say at the outset, I'm just a mouthpiece here, so please, please just get it out of your minds that Dan has this figured out just because I'm the one up here preaching. Uh, My passion and confidence spring from the Word of God and not in my ability to actually follow it, okay? It's it's sprung from here. I'm still learning. It was just so convicting to me to to study this this week. Uh, The second thing I would like to say is if you're unmarried, don't check out on me. There's, there's so much that can be applied beyond the marriage relationship in this text this morning. Um, or maybe you're a student and you say, man, that's light years away from me. I don't need to pay attention. No, there is things that we can learn outside of the marriage relationship from this text this morning. And if nothing else, just marvel at Jesus this morning because you're going to see Jesus in the text a lot this morning. And so I think everybody can benefit from this this morning. So the way I want to talk about the God-designed roles in marriage is to first consider the Trinity. Let me get a better mic, guys. I think last week this... So the first thing I want to do is talk about God's... Um, God hit his design for marriage and consider this, this dance, what I'm going to call sort of throughout this whole thing, this Trinitarian dance. The Trinity has been and always will be in a beautiful dance, right? It's, it's a very complex dance, uh, but I want to draw your attention to the exchange that's we're going to see in our text this morning, that of honoring and submitting, honoring and submitting. God asks us, listen to this, God asks us to do within our marriages what he does within the Trinity. He's asking us to do in our marriages what he does in the Trinity, and it's a beautiful dance. The Son submits to the Father, and then the Father bestows honor on the Son, crowns the Son with honor, submitting and honoring within the Trinitarian relationship. And we can see this most clearly 
in God's plan or God's work of redemption, right? Uh, God the Father planned redemption and sent the Son into the world, right? The Son obeyed the Father and accomplished redemption for us at the cross. After Jesus ascended back into heaven, the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to apply redemption to us. So we see this dance in the Trinity. The Father plans, directs, and sends, and then the Son and the Holy Spirit obey and are responsive to the Father's directives. So the Son submits to the will of the Father, and then the Father crowns the Son with honor and glory, just like we hear in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. And then Peter, in his second letter, says, for when Jesus received honor and glory from who? God the Father. So you have this dance in the Trinity of submitting and honoring, submitting and honoring to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son is equal to the Father in deity, dignity, worth, and essence, Yet the Son submits to the Father, and the Father bestows honor on the Son. We never see the converse in Scripture, right, where the Son is submitting to the Father. Oh, I'm sorry, where the Father is submitting to the Son, and the Son is bestowing honor or crowning honor to the Father, right? We see this pattern in the Trinity, that they have equal worth but distinct roles within that relationship. Within the eternal Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity, Cornelius Plantain says this, within the eternal Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to each other. This is the dance. This is the eternal dance of love in the Trinitarian relationship. So in a sense, marriage reflects this. We are a reflection of the Trinity in our marriages. And I want to drill down just a little bit further and, and look at Christ. Not only are our marriages a reflection of the Trinity, but God has designed male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. Now, complementary is not a word we're used to saying much. This complementary is with an E, not an I. So complement with an I is your hair looks good today. That's a compliment. This is different. This is a complement with an E. Complement with an E is defined like this, something that completes or makes perfect. So think about marriage in relation to Christ. We reflect complementary truths about Christ, something that completes or makes perfect, two parts needed to complete the whole. So Jerry Maguire had it almost right when he said, you complete me. Would have been better if he would have said, you and I complete a picture of Christ. But I don't know if that would have sold many movie tickets. So we in our marriages do this. We, have, we, we, we reflect complementary truths about Jesus. So when I say the male and female roles reflect complementary truths about Jesus, I mean that the Bible views male and female as equal in dignity and worth and standing before God but we reflect different qualities about God, reflect different qualities about Jesus. Qualities needed in order for us to have a more complete view of who Christ is. God is so great and God is so glorious that one gender is not enough to display his qualities. 
Both genders bear God's image fully, but each does it in a unique and special way. God has designed complementary roles in marriage in order that we may fully display His glory. So it's about Jesus. This design is about Christ. It's just another way to put Christ on display in our marriages. We get a more complete understanding of Jesus by the way God has ordained roles in marriage. And when we tear down and attack the God-given design in marriage, we display an incomplete or inaccurate picture of our Christ. So men in their roles in marriage are putting Christ on display in a way women cannot. And likewise, women in their roles in marriage are putting Christ on display in a way men cannot. So when you think about this, this means that Christ played both roles that he is asking men and women to play in marriage. Think about that. Christ played both roles that he's asking us to do in our marriages. In dying, Christ was honoring his bride. And in dying, Christ was submitting to the Father. What we do in our marriages is a reflection of what Christ did. John 17, 2 says that Christ was given authority all over all flesh, yet he humbly submitted to the will of the Father in coming to die for those that he had authority over. Then about the future reign of Christ, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, when all things are subjected to him, that's future, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So even in eternity, Christ is reigning, but it's in subjection to the Father. The Son submits to the Father in both coming to die and ruling for all eternity. Wives, when, when you submit, you are putting Jesus on display because Jesus submitted. Men, when you're honoring your bride, you are putting Jesus on display because Jesus honored his bride. In Scripture, the church is known as the bride of Christ. Jesus did not stand by in passive silence as Adam did when the enemy offered his wife this fruit of independence from God. Jesus didn't stand by and let that happen. Jesus came and he died for his bride. Jesus took action and said, I'll lay it down my life for her. I'll save her at all costs. Jesus honored his bride. This is cross-bearing leadership, not the lording it over type leadership that the Bible condemns. Lording it over leadership is not honoring to your bride. It's not honoring to your wife. Like Jesus, we've been called to honor her at all costs. So we see this honoring, submitting pattern within the Trinity, right? We would never say that Jesus is less than the Father because he submitted to the Father. And we would never say that the Father is superior to the Son because he's the one crowning honor on the Son. It's a dance. It's a Trinitarian dance of love that has been going on for all of eternity, and it's magnificent. This dance took Jesus to the cross in an unprecedented move of both honoring his bride and submitting to the Father. As men and women in Christ, we are now part of this dance. And God says, do this dance in your homes. Jesus died so that we could be part of this dance. So now Peter tells us in some very specific ways 
how this dance is played out in real-life situations. So let's walk through Peter's instructions. We've already read it, so let me just show you the outline I'm sort of working with. So the instruction is to wives in verses 1 through 6. Submit to your own husbands. And then he says there's a purpose for this. Very sort of unique situation that Peter addresses here, that there is an evangelistic purpose in the submitting to your husbands. And then, number two, the superiority of inner beauty in verses 3 and 4. How superior inner beauty is to that of external beauty. And then, number three, in verses 5 and 6, he shows us an example, and that is of Sarah. So let me start with verse 1. It says, likewise, wives, subject, be subject to your own husbands. Notice that Peter says here, be subject to your own husbands, right? He has this word in here to, to help us understand, meaning unless another authority structure uh, calls for it, like maybe citizens to government, employee to employer, uh, church member to elders, unless another authority structure calls for it, women are not supposed to submit to any and every man. This instruction is reserved for the husband-wife relationship. Then he gives the reason for this instruction. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter has all marriages in view. We know that because of the even if statement there. Uh, but Peter's making this point here. It's, I think it's very interesting that, that submission is a powerfully evangelistic tool in the cases where the wife is a believer and the husband is not. It's an evangelistic tool. Remember the aim of First Peter, right? He's instructing believers how to live as aliens in this world. And we are to live in such a way that our conduct becomes a testimony to the gospel. Remember how Peter said it in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or how about last week? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So Peter's continuing on with this theme, and he gets down to the most basic institution in society where a difference in belief may exist. And in this case, an unbelieving wife and a uh, sorry, an unbelieving husband and a believing wife. And the principle is still the same: let your conduct win him. So this type of uh, relationship in first century uh, Greco-Roman uh, society would have caused a lot of friction. So the Greco-Roman ideal at that time would have been that the wife is supposed to worship the gods of her husband. And so now you have a situation where she believes in Christ and he does not. And so Peter, he was making sure, he's given us instruction that this is not rebellion, folks. Rebellion is not the way of the cross. Even though your husband may be an unbeliever, you still are to submit to him. Rather than fleeing or rebelling, Peter says, submit even to an unbelieving husband. He doesn't even say, drop a mini-sermon every now and then at dinner to try to win him. No. He simply instructs the wife to submit and win him to Christ with your conduct. It's not by words, but by conduct. Which brings me to my next point. Submitting is not really an action, it's a position of the heart. Submitting is not an act, but a position of the heart. It will most necessarily manifest itself probably in actions, but primarily it's a position of the heart. Peter says that this winning is without a word by the conduct of their wives 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then in verse 3 and 4, he begins to talk about inner beauty, connecting this submitting with inner beauty. So there's this connection here that it's, it's, it's springing from the heart. It's not necessarily these certain actions that wives are supposed to do. It's really a position of the heart. Now, I find this fascinating. This evangelistic tool seems to be unique to this situation, right? We have many like, examples in Scripture where uh, our conduct will silence the uh, foolishness of unbelievers, where our conduct will even cause an unbeliever to glorify God. Um, but I didn't find anywhere else in Scripture where it was this explicit that not by words but by conduct you can actually win an unbeliever to Christ. I even Googled it. Like I did my Googles here and it didn't show anything this explicit in Scripture where the, the unbelievers, not by, the believer not by words but by conduct can win an unbeliever to the Lord. And I thought how gracious a thing for God to do. How freeing for God to do this in a split household like the one Peter speaks of. The wife can rest and not feel pressure to win her husband with words, maybe creating more conflict within the marriage. Peter says, just rest. And by your conduct, without a word, you can win him to the Lord. This evangelism is unique. Everywhere else, it's proclaim the word, speak the word, speak the gospel, and God uses that to bring sinners to salvation. But in this very narrow, very unique situation, he says, you can win your husband without a word. Let's listen to how Peter argues that inner beauty is far superior to that of outer beauty. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Adorning here uh, means that which serves to beautify through decoration. So Peter is not um, sort of saying pay no attention to outer beauty. He's just lifting up the superiority of inner beauty. And he is not forbidding braiding your hair. He's not forbidding putting on gold jewelry. The reason we know this is that the third one, he says, or the clothing you wear. In the Greek, that actually says, uh, or the, the, the garments you put on. So do not let your adorning be external, the garments you put on. So he's not prohibiting putting on clothes. So we know he's not prohibiting gold jewelry, and he's not prohibiting the braiding of the hair. Peter is saying that the true source of beauty is inside of you. True beauty before God is the position of the heart, right? It's not visible in and of itself, but it reveals itself through words and through actions. And I love this. Peter uses a very significant adjective to talk about this type of beauty in verse 4. He calls this beauty imperishable beauty or incorruptible beauty. This word in New Testament is most commonly used for what? To describe heavenly realities. And now he's using this adjective to talk about the inner beauty. In our society, it's, it's all about external beauty, isn't it? 
Like for me, I think of like Instagram and Snapchat. They give you these filters that can make you look quote unquote prettier, right? Filters that make your teeth whiter, your eyes twinkle and your skin smooth and unblemished. So Peter here is saying that external beauty is as fleeting as an Instagram filter. As soon as you take that camera away from your face, the quote-unquote beauty is gone. It's fleeting. Contrast this to the imperishable inner beauty that Peter speaks of here. Doesn't fade. Incorruptible. Lasts forever. Now get this, beauty that is so attractive that we learn in the verses 1 and 2, beauty that is so attractive that it can draw sinners to Christ. This is the power of inner beauty, that it can draw sinners to Christ. Beauty so powerful or so precious that even the God of the universe calls this precious in His sight. Like the the God has seen every level of beauty, beauty on a level that we can't even fathom. He says that this type of beauty is of high worth to me. Like when I see this beauty, God says, it is very precious in my sight. It has high value in my economy. The beauty is described. You say, well, what is beauty? It's described like this. A gentle and quiet spirit. This beauty is described as a gentle and quiet spirit. It means not insisting on one's own rights or demanding one's own way. This is precious in God's sight because it indicates continual trust in God. And God always delights in being trusted. It's what he wants from us. He wants us to trust in him and not ourselves. This word gentle is used three times, three other times in the New Testament. So it's, it's a few enough times for us to, to look at him this morning. He uses this word three other times in the New Testament, twice about Jesus Christ. So remember, this is inner beauty, a gentle and quiet spirit. Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. Same exact Greek word from 1 Peter, gentle and quiet spirit. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inner beauty, then, is earth inheriting beauty. Or how about this one? Jesus talking here of himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest. Inner beauty is rest-producing beauty. Let's look at more of Jesus. Matthew 21. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble. Same Greek word from 1 Peter. Translated as humble here. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. The instruction from Peter is less about being quiet and more about Christ-like humility. Humility is the key to this kind of beauty. Humility is the key to inner beauty. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. The lies of the world say that beauty is found in a certain weight, certain body shape, certain age, certain posture, certain hairstyle, height, eye color, skin tone. But God says true beauty is found in the heart, and it is precious in my sight. 
This is where we should focus our attention. Again, not saying that external beauty is bad, but rather that inner beauty should be our highest concern and is far superior to external beauty because it pleases our Father. Let's chase after inner beauty. Now in verses 5 and 6, Peter turns our attention to the first lady of the faith. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The example that the holy women leave us is that this. Again, they hoped in God. God God always delights in being hoped in and hoped for. They submitted to their own husbands, not because their husbands deserved it or because their husbands were superior to them intellectually or spiritually. They submitted to their husbands because they had a high hope in God that he would meet their needs and that he would satisfy them through Christ. Now Peter holds up Sarah as one of those holy women. And he says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. This is not the obedience of like a child to a parent, um, but rather the, the following of Abraham's leadership. And Sarah calls him Lord here. That'd be like our sir in, in today's uh, society. Again, this has to be read in its cultural context. It, I think it's culturally weird for us, our wives, to call husbands Lord. Uh, This is just how it played out in first century Rome. It was a normal thing to to call your husband Lord back then. So submitting in today's culture will look look vastly different than first century Rome. Peter simply says, and I like this because Peter simply says submit and leaves it at that. He's relatively silent on the specifics. What What it looks like will be different from home to home, from culture to culture, from era to era. The idea is respecting and following the husband's leadership, this, this dance, one leads, one follows, it's Trinitarian, uh, beautiful. Now, there is nothing in this passage that either sanctions the abuse of wives or suggests that wives should continue submitting to a husband that treats them that way. Wives, do not submit yourself to that kind of treatment. You are free to remove yourself from that situation. The nature of suffering that Peter has in mind here is that of verbal or loss of social standing. Peter is speaking specifically of suffering that comes from standing up for an unpopular belief and doing so, or doing what's right and good because of Christ. In fact, Peter prohibits domestic violence in the exhortation to the husbands, which we're going to go to now. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Again, let me show you my outline. So verse 7, instruction to the wife, to the husbands is honor your wife. And he gives these three motivations for us to honor our wives. He says, number one, she is a precious vessel. Number two, she's a co-heir of grace with you. And then number three is more of a warning, really, so that your prayers may not be hindered, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, the Greek reads here, live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. So husbands, we should take an interest in our wives. 
knowing her needs, empathizing with her, seeing and understanding the things that she struggles with. Live with her in an understanding way, and how do we do that? The primary point is showing her honor, showing honor to the women. Guys, I think this puts the ball in our court to ensure that our marriages are healthy. I know we joke about not understanding our wives, but this is not acceptable. The instruction that Peter gives here is live with your wives in an understanding way, showing her honor. It's sinfully passive to give up on this command, guys. A marriage won't survive a husband's passivity in this area. We must honor her. Jesus was not passive in rescuing the marriage between him and the church, and neither should we be. I was right, as I was writing this sermon, I was, this country song came to mind, so I apologize for this. Uh, yeah, I don't have it on the screen. Uh, it's a song by country singer Chris Stapleton. He has this song called Either Way, and it's really a sad song if you listen to it. It's, it's about a husband who gives up on his marriage. And he says, we pass in the hallway as we go to separate rooms. We only talk when the monthly bills are due. So the couple in the song really operate more like roommates than they do lovers. One line in the song says, we go to work, we go to church, and we fake the perfect life. And I just hear that line and I think, is that true of our church today? The, the hook of the song repeats this sad line. Baby, you can go or you can stay, but I won't love you either way. This is a man that has given up on his marriage. Guys, this is on us. This is not Jesus-like leadership. This is not Jesus-like love. This is not honoring your wife. This is not living with her in an understanding way. This is passive, self-centered love, which is not love at all. We can't give up. Jesus did not give up on us. Jesus was not concerned about his own needs being met. This is not our Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was not concerned about his own needs. He wanted to rescue his wife. And he came to die for his wife. And this is who we should be emulating in the marriage, guys. Peter gives us three motivations that should drive us to honor our wives. The first thing he says that draws our attention to is that they are the weaker vessel. Again, this is pure biology here. The difference is that in general, men are stronger than women. You know, women are not intellectually inferior. They are not emotionally inferior. Neither are they weaker spiritually or uh, morally. So the most obvious uh, teaching here is that of sheer strength. And so Peter says, honor the feminine one. That's what the actual Greek says here. It doesn't say woman. It says showing honor to the feminine one as the weaker vessel. Again, Peter's using this indicates that we should not have this lording it over type leadership. Like real men don't use their, don't use their strength to lord it over. Real men use their strength in a delicate way. Real men use their strength to honor their brides. And this is what Peter is asking us to do. We don't just, she, she's a precious vessel. We don't just treat her like a tool that when we're done with, we throw in the toolbox. 
She's like a, a precious vase that we put on display and we treat delicately because she is precious. This is the idea that Peter is getting at here for us men. The next motivator goes like this. Honor your wives since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Men should honor women because we share the same eternal inheritance. Our wives are co-heirs with us. We are, the Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. And now Peter's saying that your wife is a co-heir with you. So treat her as such. Jesus' blood was spilt for both of you. You may be the leader in the marriage, but we are equal in terms of spiritual privilege. You honor your wife. Your wife deserves the honor owed to the daughter of a king because that's what she is. Your wife deserves honor because she's a daughter of the king. Now, Peter's, Peter's final motivator here is more of a warning, as I alluded to earlier. Show honor to the woman so that your prayers may, be, may not be hindered. Show honor to your wife so that your prayers may not be hindered. I just wanted to skip over this one. Like, there's real consequences. Maybe the reason my prayers aren't being answered is that I'm not honoring my wife. That's tough to hear, right? Guys, if our prayers aren't being answered, maybe we need to assess how we're treating our wives. So the general principle applies here that sin influences your prayer life. We see this in 1 Peter later on. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then I really see it as a fatherly discipline for the husbands that we read about in Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. So husbands, God is watching how you treat your wife. He's watching, and he cares about that. Cares so much about that that he's willing to interrupt that intimacy that we get from him through prayer. He's, he's willing to interrupt that so that he will wake us up out of our sinful stupor and honor our wives like we're supposed to honor our wives, like Christ love the church. So this is the dance. Honoring and submitting within the marriage. Individually, we're, we're, whether married or not, because of Christ, we are invited into this internal dance. Because Christ died on the cross... Because he shed his blood, we've all been invited in this, to this eternal dance. Marriage is simply a picture of that dance. Marriage is simply a picture of the eternal Godhead. He's asking us to do what he does within the Trinity. So let's do this dance. Let me pray.